Now exactly 7.35, March 11th, 2011. A date seared into Japanese memory, not just for the devastating loss of nearly 19,000 lives caused by a magnitude 9 earthquake and tsunami, but for the world's worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. The cleanup is set to take up to 40 years at a cost of around 21.5 trillion yen, and that number keeps rising. To commemorate the sixth anniversary of the disaster, let's welcome on the line Kendra Ulrich, Senior Global Energy Campaigner at Greenpeace Japan. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning and thanks for having me on the show. So, six years on, uh, can you summarize the situation around Fukushima as things stand? Sure, yeah. The situation at the Fukushima Daiichi site itself, um, as well as off-site, is unfortunately, six years later, still ongoing, uh, still an ongoing radiological crisis and far from returning to normalcy, despite the impression that the Abe government is trying to present. Um, as has been witnessed by the uh, multiple failures of uh, robots recently, uh, to get close to the molten fuel, to have an understanding of what's happening inside of Unit 2, uh, which was seen as less challenging, as well as off-site, the lifting of evacuation and orders in places like Atate this month, um, where areas still far exceed uh, the long-term decontamination targets, clearly demonstrate that the situation, both on-site and off-site, uh, is ongoing um, and, again, uh, will be for the foreseeable future. How long do you anticipate it will be before we can say uh, residents can begin to feel comfortable in this area, uh, that, before we can say that we're relatively safe even? Mm. Well, you know, it's important to understand that the situation is different in different areas of Fukushima, of course, because the uh, deposition was not uniform. Um, but in areas like Atate, uh, and in many of these other uh, upland, contaminated, mountainous forest areas, the situation we expect to be uh, unsafe for people to live um, for decades to centuries. And that's because radiocesium, uh, cesium-137, uh, which is the radionuclide that's predominantly left, um, is a mimic of potassium, and it's been incorporated into the ecosystems of these forests um, and is biologically available and is cycling in the material cycle of the ecosystem where it can recontaminate areas that are, have been decontaminated, but also that these homes, these agricultural fields, they are embedded in the forest. Um, you know, so it's, it's very difficult for people to go back uh, to any kind of way of life that they were used to prior to the accident in uh, these very rural mountainous communities. Um, wherein they are surrounded by a radioactive forest. Well, those most sorely affected might still ask why. Why did something like this happen? Can you briefly remind us why and indeed how this nuclear plant succumbed? Sure. I mean, the thing, the most important thing to understand about the uh, cause of the Fukushima Daiichi uh, accident is that it is a man-made disaster. The Japanese diet, uh, after the Fukushima Daiichi disaster happened, um, uh, instituted its own investigatory committee. And the report from that committee clearly said that the cause of the accident, although we can point to, you know, the tsunami, we can point to 
the loss of backup uh, diesel generators because of the uh, tsunami, uh, potential earthquake damage, those sorts of things. The real problem uh, was the uh, close and intimate relationship between the regulator and the industry and the lack of an independent regulator because of too close of a tie uh, with uh, government agencies that were in charge of promoting uh, the nuclear industry. Mm. And unfortunately, um, that led to a lax safety culture and lax regulatory oversight that allowed these types of things uh, to go forward uh, for decades. Um, and the Mark I reactor design has known to have been flawed um, since the 1970s. Uh, we knew that the containment building on the Mark I um, is deeply flawed and has the potential for catastrophic failure. And yet, in the wake of Fukushima, not only um, is that reactor design still being uh, operated throughout the world, but, um, you know, this is something that, that here in Japan, uh, unfortunately, the, the government is still trying to move forward with the restart of uh, multiple different types of reactor designs, but reactors that are uh, clearly unsafe to operate. Let's talk more about the cleanup effort, which could take at least decades, as we have already highlighted. I understand even robots sent to the cleanup site keep dying, to use that term, uh, because of high radiation and, and, and the problems with this in terms of logistics. Uh, if we're having those issues with robots, it, one can only imagine how challenging the situation is. Right, and um, you characterized it perfectly there. If it's challenging for robots, uh, the idea that somehow they are going to start extracting fuel by 2021 is uh, clearly exposed as, as a nuclear industry fantasy. Um, you know, this is a situation wherein they have so little understanding of what is actually happening there. And so the uh, robot that just recently died, um, you know, it's... Um, uh, Dosimeter recorded 250 sieverts per hour uh, before it died. Um, and recently, just a couple weeks ago, uh, 650 sieverts per hour. And this is a situation wherein this would kill a human being uh, in under a minute. And so it's almost inconceivable, the situation that they're dealing with on site. And the idea that somehow they are going to decommission the reactor in 30 or 40 years is wholly unrealistic. Um, oftentimes, I mean, we look at reactors uh, outside of Japan, outside the Fukushima site, um, at the decommissioning schedules, and oftentimes we're looking at a 50-year schedule, which, quite frankly, is too long uh, for a reactor that's not, um, you know, experienced this kind of catastrophic accident. And yet, even uh, those, they're saying we can't decommission these, um, you know, in a, a short time frame. And so the idea that somehow they're going to have the Fukushima Daiichi site decommissioned in 30 to 40 years um, is just not realistic. Mm. What about the seawater situation? We've heard so many horror stories about contaminated water just spewing out into the ocean. And obviously that raises concerns about that radiation traveling across the United States, for example, uh, but of uh, it affecting marine life in a wide area. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, we, um, Greenpeace had, uh, an offshore radiation monitoring, um, uh, radiation survey last, uh, March, so a year ago at the five year anniversary. And what we actually found was, you know, the Pacific Ocean is a, 
uh, enormous body of water. It's the largest body of water on the planet and uh, has the Fukushima Daiichi coast has extremely strong currents uh, that are scouring that coast. And so the, even though this is clearly the largest discharge of radioactivity into the marine environment, um, the, uh, or accidental discharge, I should say, um, the uh, situation is such that it is um, very much diluted after, um, after uh, it is discharged. And so the levels, yes, they have det- detected some uh, along the western coast of the U.S., um, but it is extremely low. Um, and the primary concern that we have are close inland. Uh, what we found, which is what we expected, was that because of the contaminated upland forest, um, with spring snowmelt, with typhoon season, um, the discharge increases dramatically uh, on orders of magnitude. And so the coastal ecosystems, uh, very close into land at the mouth of these rivers, uh, these estuaries, uh, is where we found very high levels. Uh, of radioactive contamination. And so this is where, because of the importance of estuaries for uh, marine life, for many types of marine life, um, this is where we would be very concerned about seeing uh, major impacts for for wildlife. Mm. That's not even to mention the, the wildlife that are apparently thriving in the in the area that's shut off from residents uh, yeah. around the, the disaster site. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll obviously wait and see, but it's a similar situation with Chernobyl in a, in, in that respect. Um, another question... Right, th- sorry, and feel free to address that, but I also want to talk to you about Japan's future. Sure. Yeah, just quickly on the wildlife issue. It's, um, you know, something that, um, you know, we, we hear the term thriving, and, of course, you have certain species like boars, um, that have been able to uh, take advantage of the absence of humans, absolutely. Um, but certainly there are a lot of impacts on wildlife that are being seen by ecologists, um, are being seen by wildlife biologists that are studying the area. And unfortunately, the um, species fitness, the um, uh, fitness of individuals in these species and what the impact of radiation has been having on them um, has been uh, understudied significantly. But in areas like Chernobyl, we see that the um, uh, impacts on wildlife living in uh, persistently contaminated environments are actually eight times uh, greater, uh, potentially, than the uh, impacts of radiation in laboratory and controlled environment experiments. So potentially a gross underestimation of uh, the impacts on wildlife. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Um, But how has Japan's dependence on nuclear energy changed after the disaster as we look at this different country now going forward? Sure. So I think that the the thing that's so clear when we look at Japan's current energy mix is that nuclear will never again be a major source of energy for Japan. Um, Only three reactors have restarted out of a former operable fleet of 54 um, so significant reduction, um, and the restart of reactors is being challenged in the courts by citizens, um, by uh, local politicians, and in this environment of opposition to nuclear, it is highly unlikely that this will ever again um, be a major energy source for Japan. However, the, the government is still clinging to this, this myth of uh, nuclear restarts, and it, it's important to understand that the, the utilities are extremely powerful. 
Um, and there is a revolving door between government uh, and utilities. And as such, um, you know, the basic energy plan here in Japan uh, projects uh, that, um, you know, nuclear will somehow be 22% of the energy mix by 2030, um, which would require not only the reactors to restart, but that many of them would be extended beyond 40 years. Um, and operate to a life of uh, 60 years, um, which simply, again, if we look at what's actually happened since the disaster, isn't realistic. Right. And so what we urgently need, yeah, is for them to institute uh, renewable energy and energy efficiency targets that enable it to move away uh, from nuclear energy without, um, you know, increasing fossil fuel consumption. Thank you very much, Kendra Ulrich. We've got to leave it there. It's good to have you on the line today. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Kendra Ulrich from Greenpeace Japan. Some of those guidelines, and especially moving towards renewables, we should be taking seriously here in this country with some of the coal power pollution issues, but also such a high concentration of nuclear power plants in certain parts of the country. For example, uh, in the southeast, uh, around the Kuri nuclear power plant, an issue we can pick up perhaps another day. You can text us now, Panda Sharp 1013 for 51 per message.